Hate to miss a great KUT news story or feature? Sign up for the KUT News Weekly e-newsletter and subscribe to the KUT News Weekend podcast to get caught up on stories you might have missed this week. Manage all your KUT and KUTX newsletter subscriptions at newsletters.kut.org. It's time for a healthy Which breakfast. Which is the number one chocolate for two drink. pizzas for the price of one. A taste so wonderfully fresh. Our enemy, if you want, our adversary, is not other political parties in Greece or in Italy or in France anymore. Uh, it is not the right, it's not the center. No, our enemy is apathy. And it's the sense that nothing can be done, and that it's all uh, a lost cause. And this is how we approach the issue. Welcome to The Secret Ingredient, a podcast that takes you into the depths of food history and production. We won't tell you what to eat, but we can tell you why you're eating it. For KUT, I'm Rebecca McEnroy, and I'm typically joined by Raj Patel of the Lyndon Baines Johnson School of Public Affairs and Tom Philpott from Mother Jones Magazine. But today, I'm on my own because they're busy with a Texas book festival. However, we have two guests, so it all evens out. Today's secret ingredient is democracy. In 2015, our guests today were propelled onto the global stage in an effort to take on the European banking system and restructure the Greek debt. For five months, they worked to negotiate alternatives to further austerity measures, continue to extend and pretend loans, and toward a more solvent state. Their efforts to confront the Eurozone and proceed democratically to carry out the wishes of the Greek people were ultimately defeated. But it was this battle lost that was the impetus for their current endeavor, to reform Europe and institute a transnational pan-European democracy. Deem 25, the Democracy in Europe Movement. Yanis Varoufakis is the former finance minister of Greece and author of Adults in the Room, My Battle with the European and American Deep Establishment. He's also the co-founder of Deem 25. James Kenneth Galbraith is an eminent economist. He was the assistant to Mr. Varoufakis while he was finance minister, and he chronicled this time in Greece with the book Welcome to the Poison Chalice, The Destruction of Greece and the Future of Europe. We spoke at the KUT studios in Austin, Texas, where our program is produced. Talk a little bit about how you two met. Well, I was uh, on my way to Greece uh, in, I don't know, it was 2010, I guess. Uh, and I had been reading Giannis's blog, uh, which was a, a truly remarkable um, uh, continuing commentary on the European crisis. So I sent him an email saying, you know, dear Professor Varoufakis, I will be in Greece on thus and such a date. Could we meet? And and almost immediately an email came back that said, well, would you like to give a talk at my at the PhD program at the University of Athens? And things went on from there. So, Giannis, you had known about mm-hmm. uh, Mr. Galbraith yes, before he emailed you. Mm-hmm. Of course. His uh, reputation preceded him, um, and not just because of his dad, but mm-hmm. uh, primarily his own work, which I appreciated enormously before we met. And the magnificent friendship begun... There in Athens in 2010, then we became accomplices in putting together a proposal for um, a reform of the Eurozone because we could see that the whole thing was just uh, crying out for uh, a serious rethink. Um, eventually, uh, Jamie orchestrated my passage to Austin, where I stayed for a couple of years. 
uh, teaching here at the LBJ school together. And um, uh, suddenly, uh, all hell broke loose, to put it uh, mildly. Uh, when there was an election, a general election in Greece, I contested it. I won my seat, and a couple of days later, I was finance minister, which meant that Jamie was um, summoned to Greece, uh, holed up in an office next to my ministerial office, uh, uh, trying to plot uh, a way uh, by which uh, our small but uh, valiant nation could uh, you know, escape from debtor's prison. But it goes back a little bit um, further than that, because you only ran for office because you were asked to be in the That's cabinet. Correct. And you didn't want to just be there without having a seat. Why was that? Well, I do not believe in technocratic ministers of finance, or, uh, treasurers. The, the, the profound difference between engineering and economics is that when it comes to engineering, you need experts. Uh, a democratically constructed bridge is an abomination. It will fall down and kill all of us. Uh, but when it comes to economic policy, there are no experts. There, there can be people who are a bit more sensible in the way they think about the problems. But these are questions uh, that uh, have a profound effect on the politics, uh, the culture, the humanity all around us. And there can be no expert view on uh, what our taxation policy must be, on what our policy regarding uh, money printing should be. These are all political questions, and we must all be part and parcel of this decision-making. Otherwise, we have no democracy. Mm -hmm. uh, so a finance minister should have a mandate from the electorate uh, in order to be legitimate. So I demanded of the prime minister of the time, or prime minister-elect, or prime minister-to-be, Alexis Tsipras, that if I was going to do that job, I would have to have the endorsement of the electorate. He didn't like the idea, uh, but I insisted. And in the end, that's exactly what happened. And thank goodness I insisted, because I found myself in the eye of a storm. And had I not had 140,000 votes backing me, uh, I would not be able to sustain uh, my position in, within that storm. Yeah. And it was not just the 140,000 votes in Athens, but the, uh, at the time I was in, in, in Greece during this period, it was obvious that uh, Giannis had the support of every, of every Greek. Uh, it was a, a, a sense of, of, of being surrounded by 10.8 you know, million bodyguards mm -hmm. uh, who were uh, providing both uh, uh, moral and political support. Uh, for the uh, positions that he was taking. So this was something that gave anybody who was even close, <laughs> even remotely close uh, to uh, uh, his position at the time, an enormous uh, sense of purpose and energy that otherwise would not have been there. And that's, you know, that's one of the things that I want to talk a lot about is this relationship between populism and policy and how you get people behind you, but also the importance of being in politics and knowing how to play that field. Because one of the things, your book, I told Jamie when we had breakfast, I said, this book renewed my faith in democracy and love, two things that I thought were dead in the water. <laughs> and it was, and he said, well, you can tell 
Yanis yourself. That's a great compliment. Um, Thank you. But it was it was so true, you know. And I I I thought, God, you know, this actually matters. You know, there are people that that matter and that that um, that have an agenda to move reform and make the world a better place for a lot of people. And then uh, a friend of mine who's a psychologist read the book as well, and we were just driving to San Antonio and coming back, and he said, you know, I read it differently. I think, you know, it's a failure of leadership. And I said, and we had uh, the entire way to San Antonio, we were talking about this. So I read the book again. And I thought, okay, well, what, what do you think was missing? Why couldn't you get things done that you wanted to get done? Was there something that you had as an academic that you didn't have as a politician that you wish you would have had? Were there people that you think, looking back on things, who you should have brought into the circle to move things forward? So that's a question. I think your friend was right in saying that at least one way of reading this story is that of a failure of leadership the outcome would have been very, very different if Alexis Tsipras, who is the man that uh, brought me into government and who, by the way, was here at the LBJ school in uh, a a, a previous incarnation of the Eurozone conference that Jamie organizes four years ago. Mm -hmm. Uh, Had he he stood by the agreement we had on our tactics and our strategy, uh, the result would have been very different. It would have been infinitely better for the vast majority of the people of Greece, and I believe it would be infinitely better for for Europe as a whole. Uh, you asked me what what would I have done differently, and what skills or um, uh, tactics or devices I would like to have brought to the job. Only one: uh, more preparation. The election took place <clears throat> a mere two weeks after I arrived in Greece, after having lived here in Austin, Texas. So I re- relied entirely on a political party uh, whose machinery I had nothing to do with. I simply had to take it on trust that its leader, Alexis Tsipras, was on board and our agreement was going to, to, to remain intact throughout a very difficult David against Goliath struggle against the world's most powerful and ruthless creditors. Uh, so if I could have done something differently, I would have rewound time and I would have gone back earlier to become part and parcel of organizing the party differently. Uh, but then again, you know, you can't rerun history. And I do not believe that um, I could have seen eye to eye with a lot of the, the people who were in that political party. Uh, it was an important decision to, I think, I still have no regrets over having a go. But in the end, it, de- it depended on the capacity of that political party and its leadership to stand firm. And that's where we were found wanting. So now we, you know, we are trying to do things from scratch because there's no such thing as final, final defeat and there's no such thing as final victory. So when you fail, you try again and you try to fail better. And so this time around, we, we are creating a political movement, which is pan-European and, of course, in Greece. It's small but growing. And we are trying to erect it on the right foundations of, um, uh, how did you put it, uh, love and... Uh, democracy. And democracy. <laughs> <laughs> what about you? What do you think maybe would have been done different? Who, who would you have called upon? Well, I think that the, 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 the strategy that 
Giannis pursued uh, over that four-month period, which was a strategy to attempt to uh, turn a corner in a, Europe's view of, uh, of, of appropriate economic policy, Europe's view of what it would take to hold Europe together in the long run, was the right strategy. I mean, one had to approach this at the political level uh, to make it clear that there was, um, you know, that, that what was had been imposed on Greece and on, on the other countries that were in crisis in the Eurozone uh, was um, a self-defeating and, and in the end unacceptable course of action. Um, at the end of the day, in order to make that work, uh, you had to um, be firm about it. You had to be, the government of Greece had to be willing uh, to stand in a united way uh, uh, behind a, that particular position. Uh, and it wasn't. That was the difficulty, that there were uh, there were defectors from an early stage, uh, and it became clear uh, to the creditors uh, that uh, they were not uh, that they were in a, a strong position, and that they could uh, they would prevail if they waited long enough and, and made no concessions. And that is in the end what they did. Uh, so I'm I am in Yanis's corner and thinking that there's really very little that we could have done that would have brought about a different outcome, uh, but that a different outcome not only was possible but should have should have been. Uh, uh, should have should have been brought to pass and should have been pursued uh, with uh, uh, more determination than was the case. And when you're caught up in an environment where people suffered nothing but defeats for a very long period of time, it is hard for lots of people to conceptualize the alternative when they're not when they somehow can turn a corner uh, and uh, experience um, bring about a change. Uh, and um, well, said didn't succeed in yeah. 2015, but. Uh, the game doesn't end. If I may be a little mm. bit more precise in answering mm. your question, mm. uh, the team we had assembled was a dream team. It was an um, unbelievable team. Not just Jamie Galbraith, but we had Jeff Sachs from Columbia University, we had Larry Summers, the former U.S. Treasury Secretary. We had a former finance minister from Britain, conservative, which is very interesting to have as a radical left-wing finance minister, somebody like that, Norman Lamont on your team. We had the former chief economist of Deutsche Bank. So there was no dearth of expertise in, on the team. It was not a question of having even more of those experts. In, if anything, the creditors were particularly peeved that we had such a strong team and we understood, our team understood the, te the technicalities of debt restructuring and of macroeconomic policy much better than they did. This, this was not the issue. But as the indebted, uh, bankrupt player in th this magnificent tussle, our only weapon in the end, the catapult of David against Goliath, was uh, our determination not to sign up on another extend and pretend loan. Because if you're bankrupt and you're um, negotiating with very powerful creditors and you owe them $320 billion, which is something like $380 billion, uh, your strength comes from not allowing them to pay themselves in order to pretend that you're not insolvent. Uh, had we stood by our guns on this, and this was a question for the Prime Minister, you see, I was not Prime Minister, I was Finance Minister, we would, I, I have no doubt, we would have achieved the, the good outcome that Jamie referred to. Yeah. Or the better outcome for that matter. And the other, and the other thing, as I, as I said before, was that 
it wasn't just that the Greek government did in fact have a, through the finance ministry, did in fact have a program and did in fact have an articulation of that program, but it also had the support of the people. Uh, and that was something that was not entirely clear uh, that that support would hold up from February to the end of June, uh, but it did. Uh, and so there, the, the failure of NERV can, was not a, a loss of popular support uh, by, uh, by the Greek government, but as I say, something that happened internal uh, to the rest of the government. And now, you know, you, you both just wrote this article in The Nation, and it's about failing again, maybe failing better, right? Maybe restructuring Europe. And in the first paragraph, you bring up FDR. And so I was thinking about all of the, the ways in which there was a battle for a narrative amongst populists in America during this time, and how certain battles for social rights, um, hospitals, education, were fought in a political stage, and how they got passed, and, and then who grabbed the torch, you know, for the, the agenda. And I was thinking about this story with Huey Long, and a group of African-Americans came up to him and said, we need our own hospital. Like, we, we you know, this is, this is ridiculous. We're not getting the care we need. We need our own hospital. And he said, okay, I'll get you a hospital built, but it's not, you're not going to like how I do it. And so two weeks later, he said, this is just an atrocity. I was in a hospital, and a black man had gotten into a car accident, and there was a white nurse who was taking care of him, and that shouldn't happen in our state. And he said, I'm going to make a hospital that is for African-Americans and they can, you know, take care of themselves and, 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 um, and just so we don't see this atrocity happen ever again. And whether Jelani Cobb said this story on, in the New York uh, Public Library podcast, and he said, um, he doesn't know if it's true, but the fact that this was, you know, a known fact that he was working for African-Americans at the same time he was kind of this, you know, very contentious political figure. Louisiana made me think about the different ways that agendas are passed and the different ways that people use rhetoric that's fascist, that's, you know, racist for their own political means. And in Europe right now, we see how those agendas have, have, the, have gained hold in during the Brexit discussions and the way that this, these different types of rhetoric are, are being used to mobilize people. And I wonder where you sit on having discussions about this. Are those types of rhetorics and movements, populist movements, that are racist and anti-Semitic, are they benefiting at all the Troika? Where do they sit within these discussions? And who, if someone, if a specific political party gains hold of these and uses them, uses this populist agenda for their political end, what does that mean, and how are you fighting those battles within this new movement uh, for democracy in Europe? Well, look, j just like in the 1930s, so to today, the establishment and the xenophobic right are accomplices. They genuinely need one another. Uh, look at Europe today. Uh, the establishment is clearly losing its legitimacy every day that passes. The only thing that keeps them in power is the fear of uh, Marine Le Pen in, in France, the Alternative for Deutschland in Germany, the Golden Dawn in Greece, the crypto-Nazis or out-and-out Nazis uh, of the xenophobic right. 
Uh, and the, uh, the xenophobic right needs the establishment because they define themselves in juxtaposition to the establishment. This is a fake opposition. They are genuine accomplices. So to answer your question, uh, what DiEM25 is trying to do is to try to... It, we are fighting a, um, a war at two fronts. Uh, one is against the establishment and its business as usual. There is no alternative toxic dogma, which is causing the frag social fragmentation which feeds the ultra-right and the ultra-right which needs the establishment in order to, to, to have a, a straw opponent. Uh, so we are simultaneously putting forward proposals that show up the establishment for its combination of authoritarianism and incompetence, while at the same time fighting against all those populists who are proposing the disintegration of Europe that will have immense human human costs and in the end reinforce those populists. By the way, and then allow me to just finish on this, uh, it's important to define populism uh, and to explain why a progressive can never be a populist. For me, there is a fundamental difference between being popular and being populist. We, Our government, as Jamie said before, was very popular, but we were certainly anti-populist. A populist is somebody who is appealing to the worst instincts of humanity in order to become popular and then impose policies that turn against the interests of the majority. And you cannot be progressive and be populist at the same time. Well, to pick up your story, I don't think there's anybody that I can think of who is presently in what passes for the... European establishment, uh, who had the has the the the, the subtlety or the uh, or uh, of 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 a Huey Long, and and an ability to to uh, appeal to the worst political instincts and in, while at the same time advancing something else entirely, which is the the the, the thrust of the story that you're. Uh, in fact, you have these two separated entities, essentially, a, 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 a gray and um, an utterly um, uncharismatic, unappealing uh, official leadership um, in a state of advanced decay, by and large, uh, and the... Uh, um, uh, and the, uh, the, the the xenophobic right wing, uh, which, as Yana said, is the other side of the of the crutch. Uh, so this is a the, the situation is different. The, the the appeal to the New Deal uh, is uh, historical and and metaphorical. It's not important not to uh, uh, overemphasize the. The, the role of the American model. This proposal here is for a European New Deal, uh, very much crafted toward, to, the, to the political uh, and constitutional realities in Europe. But it does um, draw on aspects of the American experience which uh, are uh, of really um, of considerable relevance for Europe. One of them is that the New Deal is something that, that came together in a very short period of time. So we're looking at, at major changes that could be put uh, into place within uh, you know, a, political, uh, a political lifetime at the right moment in a, in, a, in a political crisis. And the other is that the New Deal is remembered as being a, a massive expansion of government in general, was for the United States uh, the moment in our history when we integrated the South, uh, which had been uh, left in a state of economic 
stagnation, depression, really, for 70 years following the Civil War, when we brought it back into the um, to the larger economy of the country. And if you, if you go around here, of course, I mean, the, 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 uh, uh, the signs of this are still things that we live with today, including the, you know, the, the, the main building at the University of Texas and the, uh, and the, the dams on the Colorado River, these, the electrification of, of, uh, of, of central Texas. These were aspects of a process of development of the uh, stagnant and indebted uh, and impoverished regions. Uh, which created the integrated United States that presently exists, um, economically integrated across large uh, uh, terrain. What is so significant about the way Europe is structured now is that you have a, a, a situation of debt dependency and uh, debt deflation uh, that is uh, geographically stratified between the north and the south. This has to be overcome or the simple financial dynamics are going to have and continue to have um, vast political consequences which will uh, make the European project uh, ultimately untenable unless uh, unless they're dealt with. And that, you know, that concept of, well, I think, I think it's an oversimplification to say you want a United States of Europe. But there is something that in the book comes out, which is a need for oversight, a need for accountability within the Troika, you know, within the European banks and the people who are controlling all the money. There's no accountability to the people. What is the, the, the main overall agenda for reforming? You're quite right. The, the uh, Europe is, a, of course, a paradox wrapped in an enigma and so on, in the sense that we have um, succeeded after decades or centuries of struggles to democratize our states. But, and this is a paradox, we have simultaneously shifted all the important decisions away from the realm of our states and our parliaments and our democratic processes on, onto the center uh, in the European Union, which is a democracy-free zone. Uh, it's, it operates like a cartel. And cartels are designed to be anti-democratic, to take the demos out of the democracy. Uh, so, and, and you know, the, the cartels are pretty good at distributing the goodies and the benefits and the profits during the good times. They are atrocious when it comes to periods of um, stagnation, to periods of decline, at distributing burdens. Uh, sheer authoritarianism combines with uh, economic incompetence uh, in, in order to exacerbate the crisis and to bestow upon the weakest of shoulders the greatest of burdens. <laughs> um, so the bankers' uh, losses were all um, deposited onto the shoulders of the weakest uh, of European citizens and taxpayers. The answer to this, and this is my answer to your poignant question of what needs to be done, what must we do now, and what is our proposal as Team 25? Well, the first thing we need to, need to do is we need to offer an agenda as to what should happen tomorrow morning, not in some distant point in the future, because if you tell despondent Europeans now that, oh, you know, a, a different Europe is possible if we were all very different people to what we are, but they can't see how, the trajectory that will take us from where we are to where we should be, they despair and they stay at home and watch silly programs on television. Uh, so what is important is to show how you, could, you would use the existing institutions within the existing rules of the game to make substantial difference within a week, within two months. 
This is essential. And this is what we're doing with the European New Deal. So, and, and then, of course, build up and say, well, these first weeks, months, that will be swift, like the original FDR New Deal was, uh, is going to create st stabilization, uh, st stabilize the, the crisis, and restore hope as a prerequisite for the second phase, which will include institutional changes and institutional reforms, and then hopefully to the third stage, which is going to bring about, and this may surprise you, a democratic federation in Europe. Because, let's face it, the moment you embark upon creating a single market with a single currency, you also need a single state. Uh, because, you know, the, the idea that, they, that you can have a free market operating outside the realm of a state is ludicrous. It's just a figment of some neoliberal imagination. Uh, somebody has to, to, to decide what the common rules are, what the industrial standards are, what the environmental standards are, what the labor market, labor protection standards are. And it better be a democratic parliament that decides that and uh, a judiciary that reports to, you know, to, that implements those and an executive uh, which is democratically elected. So the idea is not to copy the United States uh, of America. The idea is to innovate and move towards these three phases, stabilization through utilizing existing institutions, second stage, tinkering with existing institutions, and then third phase to do that which um, uh, I think Europeans can be rightly envious of uh, in regarding uh, our American friends, uh, to have a 20-page document that binds us together, that we have drafted in common, and which we're proud of, a constitution. Yanis, mm -hmm. I wonder if you could just say a word about, I mean, it's sometimes thought that in that five months in 2015, the Greek government really didn't achieve anything, but there were some steps that were taken that were immediate and concrete. I'm thinking in particular of the nutrition assistance program. I might just say a word about how this uh, the effect that this kind of thing can have on people's lives. At the time when we were being asphyxiated by the official official Europe, by the, our central bank, by the creditors, with the very little money that uh, we found in the coffers, um, the day I stepped into the Ministry of Finance, I convened a meeting of the Treasury and I asked them, the difficult question, how many days do we have before we are completely and officially bankrupt? The answer was 11, 11 days. <laughs> this is not a good way to start one's career as a finance minister. But nevertheless, in spite of this liquidity squeeze and crunch, uh, we set aside a sum of money, not a lot of money, um, something like 300 million, which you know, for a state is peanuts, peanuts really. Uh, and what we did was we uh, we created the equivalent of food stamps program, which was extended to providing some support with rent, considerable support with rent, and uh, energy uh, provision. So there is uh, a minimum supply of electricity for families that could not pay their electricity bill and who were living in the dark due to the crisis. Uh, we handed out uh, a visa card or was it the MasterCard, actually, or a combination of the two that was issued by the government with a sum of about 300 euros, that's about $380 a month, which sounds puny, but it made all the difference for about you know, 600,000 of uh, the most impecunious of our citizens. This was done very swiftly, within two months, and it made a gigantic difference, both morally and, of course, 
materially for these people. This is proof that uh, uh, there is a lot that can be done within existing institutions, within existing rules, if there is a political will. Interestingly, while implementing this and pushing this through Parliament, uh, you, 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 I should show you the emails I was getting from Brussels, from the European Union, threatening me with uh, you know, blue murder if I, if I dare pass this through Parliament. At a time when every week I was rolling over the bankers' uh, debts to the state of more than 54 billion. You know, that, I mean, th that speaks to the next portion, which I really want to talk about, which is mythology and stories and the importance of understanding kind of a, a trajectory of one's life, you know. And like the, when you mentioned the food stamps, I mean, what that did for Lavros, the, the homeless uh, interpreter in your book. Yes. It gave him, you know, access to his own place. And he was like finally coming on his feet. Even after you lost, you were like, oh, that, you know, it did something. We did something. And the little boys who said, you know, this, is, this gave our mom money so she could feed us. And the importance of those little moments, you know, and even the, the moment where you think back about your father and your mother and what they would do in this situation. And it all gets to kind of this, the ways in which we understand our world, you know, when we understand what's going on and, and how things are affecting us and where we find agency and where we don't. And and Jamie, when we were talking over breakfast, I, I said, well, what's next? You know, what's going to happen next? And um you know, is Alexis going to stay in power? And you said, well, people, you know, if they feel that things are getting better, then yeah, he'll stay in power. You know, if they feel like even a little bit like their life is getting better, then um, then he'll stay for a while, you know. and Can you allow me just to, 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 to correct this slightly? Yeah. Okay. Things are worse than this. The alternative to Alexis Tsipras mm -hmm. today is a conservative party that is uh, gung-ho about the austerity program that Tsipras is implementing reluctantly. Uh, and the only reason why he was, Alexis was re-elected after surrendering and after our split, uh, people ask me, you know, wasn't he re-endorsed by the public? Why are you, are you um, criticizing him? He clearly got a mandate. And my answer is that when we were elected in, initially in January 2015, it was based on a wave of hope, a bit like the Obama election in 2008. Huh? People, it was a positive vote. Back in, when he was re-elected on the basis of implementing the austerity program, and if he gets re-elected now, which I doubt, but if he gets re-elected now, it will be a completely defensive choice, a very negative choice. And the way I portray it is saying to people to think, to imagine they have a, an awful dilemma between being tortured by an enthusiastic torturer or being tortured by somebody who is not particularly enthusiastic about torturing them, but they do it in order to keep their jobs or because they fear that they will be tortured if they don't torture you. So who would you want to torture you? The enthusiastic or the reluctant torturer? Clearly, they're reluctant. So as long as Tsipras uh, is presenting himself as the reluctant implementer of awful measures that destroy people's lives, he st stands a chance of maintaining uh, his position through this reluctant uh, stand. It's up to the rest of us to put forward an alternative proposal to the people of Greece and that they can endorse positively again. 
This is like, I beat you because I love you. No, actually, that's too nice. Uh, no, I beat you because I, I don't give a damn about you. But I don't want to beat you much either, yeah. uh, except that, you know, my vested interest is in you being beaten. I think one thing to recognize here is that from the standpoint of the European creditors, the welfare uh, uh, economic recovery for the people of Greece has never been not only not a policy priority, has never been part of the policy package at all. Greece is simply a, an accommodation address, if you like, for the recycling of funds uh, to maintain the balance sheets of the European financial system. This was the what the way it was set up in May of 2010, and the, what continued to be the um, uh, the policies up to the present day. And at all times, the Greek government was simply supposed to act in the role of a supplicant, of a penitent who had uh, accepts the, 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 uh, uh, the accusation of having misbehaved badly in the past. And there's no question that some of that accusation was correct. But nevertheless, that, that was the, that's the posture uh, that the Greek government was supposed to take. And in 2015, the Greek people rejected that posture, and they said, no, this is uh, uh, that, first of all, we have legitimate interests, uh, that we are not uniquely responsible for the world financial crisis or the, uh, 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 for the collapse of the, of the banking system or the need to bail out all of the uh, all of global finance capital, uh, and uh, and no, we don't accept that we're the first ones to be starved out uh, in the aftermath. Uh, now, uh, that element of national, uh, let's say, uh, uh, national purpose and national uh, resuscitation has been eliminated. I, I think that it's possible that you will see some economic statistics that after you've been down 30%, you might be going up by two or so for a while. But but the question that would then have to ask is the benefit of that 2% actually going to any Greeks? Uh, or are we looking at a, uh, a an economy which has been so restructured that the capital assets uh, that are capable of yielding profits are simply owned by, owned by other people at this point? I mean, the, the ports, the airport, the, uh, and, and eventually the the great asset of Greece, which is the public beaches, uh, will uh, be, uh, as things are going, in the hands of the people who uh, have been able to take advantage. Uh, I believe the banking system, to a very large extent, is in the hands of Of hedge funds uh, funds, uh, now. So they're already looking at uh, an economy which is uh, being transformed into uh, from something that had a substantial measure of, of uh, um, autonomy into a, uh, a, a replica of, of other um, helpless and, and dependent uh, uh, economies around the world. May I address our audience, in particular those amongst our audience who think, okay, why do I care about Greece? The answer is, okay, you should not care about Greece, but you should care about Europe, because Europe is a very large chunk of the global economy. It's um, uh, evolution is going to impact on the lives of people here in Texas, in the United States, in Latin America, and so on and so forth. Greece should be thought of as a laboratory in which ridiculous policies have been uh, worked out before implemented across Europe. So the the attempt to disguise the fact that the Greek state was bankrupt by means of toxic loans bailout loans that were given on conditions of austerity that made the bankruptcy worse. That was then transferred to the rest of Europe. And allow me just to to, to share with our audience two numbers. As we speak, 
uh, in dollar terms, uh, the, Euro- the Eurozone, the European Monetary Union, continental Europe, um, sports around $4 billion, sorry, $4 billion, $4 trillion of uh, non-performing loans, private and public. This is more or less the total sum of the loans of the individuals, banks, uh, and states, or debt, I should say, that is non-performing, that cannot be rolled over, that cannot be repaid or serviced. Uh, at the same time, our banking system in Europe uh, has m- about $1.5 trillion missing from its capitalization. In other words, they're not functioning as proper banks anymore. Uh, and just just allow me to add a third number. We have something like $2.5 trillion uh, dollars that is sitting idly there of savings, idle savings, doing nothing, refusing to be invested because they are too scared that if they are invested, the products that will be produced at the end of the day, there won't be enough to demand for them because of the indebtedness of both the private sector and the public sector in Europe. Uh, a, this kind of Europe is the sick man or woman of the global economy. It is uh, detrimental to the capacity of the Chinese economy to maintain its poise and not to implode or not to have a major credit crisis. And it is detrimental to the prospects of the American economy. This is why Greece is important. Uh, As I said, it's a laboratory in which uh, dead-end policies were introduced and the result of their implementation outside of Greece um, is of significance to the rest of the world. So I I want to figure out in the end, what this is going to look like for people, what they're going to vote for, you know, who is going to vote for what, and what's going to be implemented, and what what are people going to think about? How are they going to visualize their life? So, um, getting back to, I think it was your book, uh, "The Weak Suffer as They Must." You have this story about a a loan officer in Germany, mm-hmm. a German loan officer on the plane who you met, who was like sick to his stomach on the way that things had changed and his role trying to give what he knew were loans that could never be repaid to the Greek people. Um, and that was different than his his role before, which was kind of like someone who would help to manage and, and curate uh, a money transfer and, and loans. So you have this guy in Germany, say his name is Fred, right? Fred is like sick to his stomach about what's happened and he knows it's wrong and he sees everything that's happening and even though he's from a privileged position, he's still like, I want things to change. This isn't right. I can't sleep at night, right? No, he wasn't that bothered with his conscience. Okay. It was even more poignant than that. Um, he, he, b- before the introduction of the euro or the common currency, uh, he, he led a charmed life. He was a banker. He was going to Athens. He was going to Dublin. He was going to Rome. He was being fated, taken to the opera because everybody wanted a loan from Deutsche Bank, which is a bank that he worked for. And, you know, he felt like king. Uh, and, you know, he would take his their business plans, their um, demands or requests for loans. He would go back to Frankfurt, which is where the HQ was of Deutsche Bank and still is. And, you know, he would sit on them and then deliver his verdict. I will lend to X, but I will not lend to Y. Then the euro happens. You have these uh, gigantic trade and capital imbalances that are created as a result of the faulty architecture of the eurozone. And suddenly his bank is replete with cash. And, of course, no bank wants to sit on on a pile of cash that they don't lend. So suddenly, he's given a a quota. He has to lend $5 every week. So now he's going back to Athens, and now he's begging the government. He's begging the banks. He's begging begging individual uh, companies or uh, 
entrepreneurs to, to take money off him. And if he doesn't unload all this stuff, all this money, uh, he's going to have a problem back in Frankfurt. So now he has become the beggar because he needs to unload all this, all, all this dough. Huh? And of course, this sustains or builds up and then sustains uh, bubbles in real estate in Ireland, in Spain, in Italy, in Greece. Uh, everybody seems to be doing fantastically well because those bubbles, are, while they're inflating, create a false sense of uh, wealth and it's you know Ponzi growth, as we might say in this country. Then, of course, those bubbles burst. And then, and then what happens? Then you have the creditors uh, cynically shifting all those uh, uh, bad loans onto the shoulders of the weakest taxpayers. And then, of course, after a while, the deep establishment wonders why people are moving towards the populist right, uh, as if it hasn't happened before. Yeah. But how do you get Fred on the same page with people in Greece? You know, who you are like suffering. You don't. But don't you need you to in order well, for a, page, in you know, order to create the, the, a democratic I, Europe? I still have some contact with this particular person oh. that you mentioned. Um, he's very sympathetic, but now he's a superannuated former banker. And all he can do is uh, at best vote for a progressive um, pan-European party. But the, the, the thing to do once you are in that situation is to get elected and uh, to say no to more bailouts and to say no, more, no to more extended pretend loans and give credit cards to the poor. That's what you need to do. And don't, do not ask the opinion of bankers, or former bankers for that matter. So is Fred not someone who you will be trying to um, get on your side? Is this like... I don't need to, because as I said, he's on our side now. But so what? Uh, he's done his damage. His bank has done its damage. Now what we want is the people who sit on their couch watching idiotic reality shows on television out of sheer exhaustion with politics, sheer exhaustion from trying to make ends meet, to put food on the table, to get them mobilized because our enemy, if you want, our adversary is not other, other political parties in Greece or in Italy or in France anymore. Uh, it is not the, the, the right, it's not the center. No, our enemy is apathy. And it's a sense that nothing can be done and that it's all uh, a lost cause. And this is how we approach the issue. But we're Our doing reasonably well. Apathy. We're doing reasonably well. And look, I came back from Italy uh, two weeks ago. I was in Italy. And our little movement, which is a tiny little movement, we've just begun. Uh, we, we had an open air rally in, um, in Torino uh, without the support of any local party. And we had uh, more than 10,000 people in an open-air rally in Torino, which is one of the more affluent Italian cities. Uh, this is just, I mean, Bologna we had 2,000 people. In, uh, in uh, Palermo we had another 2,000 people. Uh, then I was in northern Greece uh, in a very right-wing small town called Alexandropolis, Alexander's city. Uh, and we had 500 people in a small theater overflowing. So there's hope. So what will it look like when people go to the polls? How will revolution actually take place? How will how will you structure the voting in this in this situation? You know? you know, I have a lot of family in Europe. How will they how will they vote on that? How will they vote in order to implement what you what you're calling for in this new movement? I think the key is uh, to present a our, our New Deal, European New Deal proposal, we, and the reason why I'm mentioning it is because I think it, it makes sense. It is convincing, and it can mobilize people. But to present it simultaneously across Europe in many different electorates on the basis of a single 
transnational political movement that binds people together and ends this phony and uh, corrosive uh, and uh, clash between the north and the south, the east and the west. This is what we will be trying to do. May 2019 is the marker. It's when the, the pan-European elections take place, the European Parliament elections. We don't care that much about the European Parliament, but we want to hack into those elections in order to present a single uh, policy agenda that is the best antidote to TINA, to the belief that there is no alternative, uh, and to bring it in an American context. I remember the enthusiasm during the primaries with the Bernie Sanders campaign? This is the revolution that we want. Uh, we had this in Greece in 2015. Remember, when, when I was elected, uh, we got 40% of the vote. That was a party that three years before had gotten 4% of the vote. So, I, you know, I have a great trust in people. If we do the right thing by them and we present them an honest, realistic, but at the same time radical, set of proposals that make sense and which is humanist, which is not us against them, whether it's Greeks against Germans or, you know, small businesses against trade unions, uh, they will follow. It's scary, though, because, I mean, look what happened with a lot of Bernie Sanders supporters in the United States. You know, they voted for Trump. And you you can have all the rationale that you want, and you can have everything make sense, and then you can have somebody swoop in and say, you know what, I'm going to make America great again, and and it changes because of a narrative. I think the overwhelming majority of Sanders supporters, in fact, stayed with the Democratic Party in in 2016. But that Did game, they? that yeah, sure, that game isn't over either. Uh, yeah. And what Sanders demonstrated was that by uh, presenting a clear-cut and coherent program that spoke to people's needs, uh, that you could build uh, a very strong support, a base of support out of essentially nothing. Right. Uh, and uh, this was something that swept over the country. Uh, it, it didn't prevail in the Democratic Party in 2016, but as I say, the game isn't finished yet. Um, and the model is one which has an enormous promise in, uh, in, in, in the European setting when essentially the uh, previously dominant uh, major political parties are, are uh, in decline, if not collapsing everywhere. But the needs that they once met haven't gone away and have gotten and gotten and have been intensified. Uh, and of course, what's essential here is to make people understand that you are in fact addressing the root of the problem. Uh, and as I've said before, the root of the problem has a strong economic and financial dimension. Uh, and breaking the, uh, asserting essentially a democratic alternative to a rule uh, by, uh, uh, a rule by, in the interest of finance, uh, is, the, is, is the essence of persuading people that, there's a, that there is something that, that can be done and that must be done. That's what happened in the United States in 1933. After four years of uh, deepening collapse of, of, of the previously existing financial system, something had to be done, something was done. And to stay with the American example, I think it's a the parallelism that you wanted to draw is better drawn between Obama and Trump, not between Bernie Sanders and Trump. What I do believe is the case from what I hear, uh, 
a, a, a significant number of people who voted for Obama in 2008 uh, voted for Trump in 2016. And that is, I think, important because it, it demonstrates that if um, those who consider themselves progressive let the people down, they sell them a progressive story in order to do the opposite once they, they win office, that fuels misanthropy and xenophobia and the Trumps of the world. And there were a great many people who voted for Obama both times who didn't vote in 2016 as Indeed. well. So Indeed, just like in Greece. Yeah. The people on the couch that I was mentioning before that we need to re-energize. Because these are not politically apathetic people. They are politicized people who have turned against the political process. Well, <clears throat> you know, because we talked about Stuart Hall earlier. In his book, The Hard Word Renewal, where he talks about yeah. Thatcher and the way that, the, and he criticizes the left, right? Because he says that it was enough for the left just to dismiss Thatcher as fascist in order to cement their place on the left. Is there something about the debate and the discussions amongst the left that you're both thinking really needs to be addressed in order for this agenda to really reform the situation? Well, Stuart Hall had a, had a, a very important point to make back then. I remember when he was saying that, addressing the leftists, as you said, uh, he was telling us uh, that you must understand that the greatest instrument, weapon of Margaret Thatcher is that she's creating new vistas of pleasure for the working class uh, or imagined pleasure which in the end, of course, is of the kind that Jamie's father described so beautifully in the affluent society as a fake pleasure which uh, leaves you joyless and uh, exhausted after you have experienced it. Uh, these uh, nuanced narratives are very important to the progressive left. And what we on the progressive side of politics have a duty to do is to abandon demonization of the opponent. The way in which Trump supporters are being... Uh, and voters are being demonized by progressives in this country, not all progressives, but, but by many progressives, is uh, repugnant to me. Uh, you really need to look at the people who voted for Trump in Wisconsin, in various uh, uh, Rust Belt areas, and speak to their, understand where they're coming from, and see it as your duty to embrace them. If you don't do that, then you are an agent of regression. And I think that for Democrats in this country, there's a um, you know, particular shape to this problem, which is that the Democratic Party uh, has largely abandoned uh, its uh, capacity to build a base uh, all throughout the country and has become, uh, particularly in, in the way it, it, it operates at the, at the national level, uh, an enclave of, of a certain narrow band of professionals who raise money uh, from uh, particular industrial and financial interests and who then spend it on advertising and who expected to be uh, maintained in, in office uh, in, as a result of, of, of that exercise. The, 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 the foundations of an actual political party, whether it be uh, civic organizations and trade unions and constituency organizations or uh, legislators at the state and local level, uh, all of that is not only withered away, was allowed to wither away over the course of the last 
uh, well, it's really a generation, but especially in the last 10 or 15 years, and quite needlessly given the capacity for renewal that was present at the end of the, of, of the George W. Bush administration. So uh, there is uh, a lesson, I think, uh, for, for all of us. It's not just in Europe that there's a need for democracy. Yeah. And there's, you know, this idea of blowing up the system. I wonder if there's any opposition to what you're proposing as a radical stay campaign, like a radical European agenda, um, toward breaking things up, you know, mm -hmm. um, and how you how you um, how you approach that those discussions. I have a great deal of sympathy for anarchists who genuinely believe in breaking things up, but radically breaking things up. I respect their disrespect for authority, for the monopoly of viol over violence that the state thinks it has legit legitimately. Um, you know, ever since I was a young person, when I was reading Bakunin, I was uh, cheering uh, halfway through reading, well, without in the end endorsing it. Because, let's face it, if we are going to uh, preserve civilization and preserve some of the basic uh, checks and balances against violence that uh, we've created as humanity over the last thousand years since Magna Carta or whatever. Uh, we need to, on the one hand, challenge everything, uh, reconfigure all those uh, institutions of power, but at the same time not go to, to the extent of believing that um, the goodness of humanity uh, and the uh, and social conventions of decency will uh, do the job of organizing civilization in a way that doesn't leave half of us starving or in fear of um, you know gangs uh, taking control of our streets and our lives. Uh, more pertinently to the economic issues of the day. The left made a crucial historic error in the 19, early 1930s, late 1920s, early 1930s, especially in Europe. The error I'm referring to was the belief that the collapse of capitalism, which was happening and was unfolding after the Wall Street's implosion in 1929, would immediately and automatically yield the good society, socialism. It did not. It yielded Nazism and fascism. So the idea that let's break things up that we don't like because automatically goodness will spring out of it is a repetition of that historic error. Uh, nobody can accuse me personally of being a, a lackey of the European Union or a great supporter of the European Union institutions. Nobody t has been treated worse <laughs> in politics than I have by them. But it's one thing to say that the European Union institutions are awful and uh, we must clash with them in order to change them, not through gradual reform, but radical reform. It's one thing to say that. It's quite another to say that we should disintegrate them. We should, you know, pick up stamps, as the English say, and leave, and let them collapse. Because that collapse would come at a huge human cost, and the only beneficiaries, beneficiaries just like in the 1930s, would be the fascists. The only thing I would add to that is that uh, within the context of a of of a of a political union of a political framework which has to be preserved, uh, many of the institutions are negotiable. The 
the euro itself, uh, which is only covers part of the European Union as things stand, uh, was an extremely imperfect uh, institution and is administered and run in a dysfunctional way. So part of the project of reforming uh, can be can be changing uh, individual institutions, uh, but to take the an attack on the euro to be an attack on the European Union, uh, which is a project that is both advocated in some corners on the left and and raised as a bogey on some corners on the on the right in the establishment, is also a, a, a political mistake. One has to be able to reform the institutions in order to make them function better, uh, but being aware that the uh, that as Yana said that the impulse to break things up just to smash them uh, is much more likely to produce not only not only catastrophic economic losses but also a kind of um, of, of of violence uh, and an uh, national and international ethnic and um, and uh, class based violence uh, that would leave. Um, really very substantial wreckage behind it. So we're already over an hour. And even though I could mm -hmm. talk forever and ever and ever about mm -hmm. this, I will not. Um, anything that you want to, I didn't ask, and you really wanted to talk about before we go? Yeah, I, I would just say that uh, uh, that it's a, one of the privileges of being here and, and being able to work and live in Texas is that you have uh, not only a certain distance on on these things and a capacity to uh, to convene as we're doing over this uh, next few days, a very interesting group of people to discuss these issues in in a in a truly open and, and interesting way. So a way which I think epitomizes democratic values, um, but it also uh, is important to remember that this state has its, has its own history, uh, which uh, has. Um, it's a very interesting relationship to these issues. This was a state that was that was founded by debtors, and so it's an under, understanding of the, uh, uh, and which has been the been the location of many important struggles over the years. So, it's uh, uh, there is a um, it's a it's a it's a standpoint which is uh, which is worthy, and uh, and certainly it's a um, it's a great advantage to be able uh, to. Uh, hold these discussions here. James K. Galbraith is an eminent economist. He was the assistant to Mr. Varoufakis while he was finance minister. And he's the author of the book, Welcome to the Poison Chalice, The Destruction of Greece and the Future of Europe. Yanis Varoufakis is the former finance minister of Greece, author of Adults in the Room, My Battle with the European and American Deep Establishment, and co-founder of Deem25. We spoke at the KUT studios in Austin, Texas, where this program is produced. Next time on The Secret Ingredient, we'll talk GMOs, Monsanto, and science with journalist Valerie Brown. You can listen back to this show and check out our entire archive of Secret Ingredient conversations at thesecretingredient.org or subscribe to the podcast on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. The Secret Ingredient is produced at KUT Radio in Austin, Texas, engineered by David Alvarez, and hosted most of the time by Tom Philpott of Mother Jones Magazine, Raj Patel of the Lyndon Baines Johnson School of Public Affairs, and myself, Rebecca McEnroy for KUT. Thanks for listening.
As our community grapples with developing public health concerns, the team of reporters at KUT are gathering the facts and bringing you the answers to your most pressing questions. Keep this coverage strong with your gift of support today at KUT.org. And thank you.